This is 3 and 5 on SLC Management Podcast. Hi, everybody. Thanks for dialing in to another session of 3 and 5. This is Steve Peacher, President of SLC Management, and I'm with Deck Malarkey today. Deck is a Managing Director in our Strategic Research Area. Deck, thanks a lot for taking some time. Good to be here, Steve. So what I want to talk today about balance sheets of the central bank, the Fed in particular. From the financial crisis through the COVID crisis, the Fed and the other central banks have had an extraordinary expansion of their balance sheets, largely to buy bonds in the marketplace. Can you provide some perspective on the scope of this in the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you hit on it. It was those two crises drove it. But just to focus in on the U.S., and then we'll reference it a little bit to the other major central banks. The uh, Fed is up to about $7 trillion right now. To give some perspective on that, that's a third of our GDP. So it's a big number. But how we got there was prior to the crisis, we were less than a trillion. The crisis hit, this is the financial crisis in 2008, and it looked like the world was falling apart. We could get into a deep recession or deep depression. And at that point, the Fed cut rates to rock bottom. And then they said, we got to do more. And this is where they came up with, let's do some massive bond buying here. And that massive bond buying was mainly in government bonds, mortgage-backed securities to the tune of about $4 trillion. Now, they didn't do it right away. It took a little bit of time, but that's where, that's how they actually grew their balance sheet halfway there. Then, you know, as they went through time, there was aftershocks. They didn't get an opportunity to unwind it. They tried to unwind some, but they didn't get it very far there because then when COVID hit, they realize we're back in the same boat here. This is a major crisis, potentially a major meltdown. And they did the same thing. They acted quicker this time, did probably another $4 trillion or did do another $4 trillion. And that's where we got to. We're basically up to $8 trillion right now. And for perspective, other central banks did the same thing. You look at the European Central Bank, ECB, whose view is that they have moved slowly, and they had through time, but they, are, they have $10 trillion on their balance sheet. And then you look at the Bank of Japan's at seven, you got you got China at six. So everyone is in that in that range. But it did come down to averting two major crises, which in our lifetime have been major, major shocks. And when you look across economic history, these have been major shocks. So they felt this was the only way they could freeze up. They could put money into the capital markets, prevent them from freezing up because that was a big concern. And it worked. It worked from that standpoint. Jack, isn't this balance sheet expansion really just another way of printing money? And if so, why hasn't all of this support and liquidity sparked massive amounts of inflation? Yeah, so that's been the intriguing question. So you're absolutely right. It's equivalent to printing money. In the case of the Fed, they do it through creating reserves, but it's the same impact. So the the one thing, and it has been a conundrum for the Fed, I mean, particularly after the financial crisis, the one thing that happened in the financial crisis is that was a balance sheet shock. And that point, households were over leveraged. And when you're over leveraged, the last thing you're going to do, regardless of how cheap money is, you're not going to borrow. You're really going to try to get your debt down, get it under control. And the other thing, banks were reluctant to lend after the financial crisis as well. So you didn't see any expansion in debt. Therefore, that money really was not making its way back into the economy. And that's been, I think, a big driver why inflation really, really didn't show up in any pulse after the financial crisis. It was fairly anemic and it bothered the central bank that they couldn't get it up. The same thing happened after this crisis as well, or seems to be happening. Now, I think everyone reads the headlines and say, oh, well, inflation is up. Transitory inflation is up. Inflation expectations are down. But here's an interesting kind of view into the consumer right now. The Bank of New York has done some great work on this where they looked at what consumers have done with the three stimulus checks, and they added that up, 
And guess what? The consumers only spend about 30% of those checks. The rest, the pay down debt and the, the split it with savings. So again, we're seeing a very, very uh, cautious consumer coming out of COVID as well. And, and that may well carry over once we get beyond some of these temporary effects we're seeing right now, that could well end up being, you know, fairly tame inflation here. So, th- so that has been the struggle. And it's certainly something the central bank keeps working on to see how can we get inflation up. So here's the money question. How does this play out? How are the central banks going to unwind these holdings? And importantly, if that starts to happen, what does that mean for markets that have been bolstered by low interest rates, which have been an offshoot of this policy? Yeah, no, and so this, this is a great question. And, and this is, again, you know, this is new territory for central banks, for, for economic textbooks and everything. The path to, if you will, first of all, maybe withdrawing some of the stimulus we have is to taper the bond buying that we're doing right now. In the case of the Fed, they're expecting probably by the end of this year just to trail off bond buying. Now, that's a minor part of it, but they'll probably take them a year. And what they will do after that will be to raise rates. They will try to get rates up to somewhere well off zero. And that could take, you know, that could probably take another year, maybe to get up to one and a half percent, somewhere in that range, just on the short rate. And after that, and this is what they did, you know, after the 2008 crisis, at some point they're saying, all right, we're going to allow, we're going to shrink our balance sheet. We're not going to reinvest flows coming off the existing stock of bonds. We're really just going to let that trail off. And based on the kind of you know estimates I'm throwing out there, that probably suggests that you're basically in 2026 before you start to let the actual balance sheet roll off. Now, the one question, and the, and the Fed is struggling with this, and markets will need to be informed of this, is that the Fed has also made the statement, yes, you know, back pre-financial crisis, a trillion was enough in reserves, and that backed currency that was out there. But they have now realized that we probably need a bigger balance sheet because the functioning of capital markets, particularly providing repo lines, their view right now is that maybe you need $2 trillion for that just to make the system run smoothly. And when you look at actually the expected growth in currency, that's probably another $3 trillion. So you could well say that ultimately the size of the balance sheet could settle somewhere you know, around maybe 4 or $5 trillion. So if you passively allow the balance sheet to run up, you're allowing markets to get their head around that to factor that in. And I think there, things can work pretty smoothly because you create a lot, you know, obvious expectations of where you're going. The big issue, though, is if another crisis comes along, there's other shocks, you can continue to do this bond buying, but at some point or other, you, you, you actually, it, it's no longer effective. Um, so it's, it'll be an interesting path, Steve, but, uh, you know, I guess we're all hoping that it becomes a predictable passive path, but a lot remains to play out here. So the hope is that uh, this happens gradually and markets can adjust in a gradual fashion. Exactly. So one one final question, having nothing to do with printing money or the Fed's balance sheet. Dick, you and I are both big tennis fans, and of course, we're in the middle of the U.S. Open. So what I'm interested in is who's your pick to win this the U.S. Open, either on the men's side, the women's side, or I'll take both if you have a projection. Yeah, frankly, Djokovic looks hard to beat, but I absolutely love this young Canadian player. He's Alcazim. I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his last name, but he's playing really, really strong. I would love to see him in the final. 
matching against, against Djokovic, and I haven't looked at the path there. And I will also have to say, my favorite on the women's side is this young Canadian, not, not playing to the home crowd here, Lydia Fernandez. She's 18 years old. She beat Kerber. She beat Osaka before that. This kid looks fearless and fun, and that I'm picking her right now to go all the way. It would be tough. But I think those would be phenomenal outcomes if, you know, if she wins on that side and we see also a Canadian matching up on the other side. Okay, well, it's going to be uh, fun to watch. It's always a great weekend uh, with the finals and semifinals of the U.S. Open. Deck, thanks a lot. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of 3 and 5. Great catching up, Steve.